Hey, good morning, everyone. My name is Stephanie. I'm the lead pastor here, and I just want to, again, welcome people who are maybe visiting, kind of getting to know a new community. I know it's, uh, it takes, it takes a, a lot of courage, and we're just grateful that you're here. We'd love to just answer any questions you have about how we live out our mission together. We're so grateful. Um, I, I will say that there's, there's a few things I do every day. Um, for sure, one of them is drink coffee, okay? I know. Now, if I don't drink coffee, a few things will happen. No one will want to be around me, and I'll get a terrible headache, okay? So that's the reality. Now, I am one who will drink iced coffee all year round. Who's with me and Liz? Yes, so this right here, this looks like it could be water in case I get a little parched while I'm preaching, but I got back at 1 o'clock in the morning last night from the winter getaway at Covenant Pines, so this is coffee, my friends. Cold press, thick, cold press. So we'll just keep it, keeping it awake up here. We had a great time up at camp. Uh, glad you're all here with us, and I uh, hope you can maybe join us next time. And they're, they're up there having our worship service, probably finishing up right now. And so we're multi-site this morning. Level up. It's awesome. It's great. And I also want everyone to know that those of you who wanted to say showering is a thing you're doing every day now as, a, as like maybe a wish or a prayer, I, I'm with you on that one, and we're working on it. Okay. Today we're going to finish up the conversation we've been having this month called Away in the Wilderness. This spring we're going through the book of Matthew uh, from the beginning of the year all the way through this, this May probably, right around then. And we really want to dig deeper into this one book of scripture. This is Matthew, uh, one of the disciples of Jesus, his account of the story of Jesus' life and ministry and death and resurrection. And uh, it starts, interestingly, Jesus' ministry starts in the wilderness. So we've been talking about this, this theme of wilderness. And you see this theme throughout the scriptures. You see it in the whole big God story, we often call it with our kids. You see this idea that God leads people into the wilderness and through the wilderness. You see the psalmists talk about life in the wilderness. You hear the prophets talk about wilderness as a theme. And what we notice about that throughout is that the idea of a wilderness is a time of maybe waiting, of suffering, a time of, of struggle, it can kind of depend on what that wilderness is. It's a time maybe where somebody is facing confusion or disillusionment or something like that. But as we've been in this conversation this month, what we have learned is that God makes a way in the wilderness. And God works in the wilderness. And Pastor Ashish talked about how there's a space for worship in times of wilderness. And last week, Pastor Mike was talking about how the, the wilderness can be a time of spiritual preparation. And we see that in Jesus' life, as before his ministry, he's in the wilderness um, having this time of fasting in his life. And I think there's many different types of wilderness experiences in life. Am I right? <laughs> there's, of course, I think maybe it feels a little bit obvious, like the pandemic on a global level has been a wilderness-like experience for us as a world, which is a fascinating thing to experience and it's been very challenging. But I made a list of wilderness experiences I've had in my life, and I know some of you have all had in your life. And some of these are wilderness experiences that are compounded, that are happening at the same time as the global wilderness we've been in. And I think you might recognize some of them. A wilderness of loss and grief, of, of waiting. Uh, some people have been pr hit pretty hard by what I would call a political wilderness, you could suggest we've faced. Uh, relational wilderness. A wilderness experience that comes from a crisis that you're facing in life or an illness. That Definitely, I know there's people that can resonate with the idea of a vocational wilderness when you're just really struggling and feeling a little disillusioned by your job or trying to figure something out. Have you noticed how these wilderness experiences change you? Now, I mean, not every single time, but I would say most wilderness experiences 
change you in some way. It's not always a huge way, but I've noticed that nearly every wilderness experience I have faced in my life has changed me in some way and often changed the trajectory of my life in some way. And maybe it wasn't a huge trajectory shift, but you notice when your trajectory changes a little bit, you can end up in a very different place than you were going. And I have noticed that in my life. And perhaps these last two years have been that kind of trajectory shifting change in your life. I know it has been for me. And I want to share a little bit about that this morning. And I actually want to start off with a story of a wilderness experience I had in my life uh, in the past. So today's story time with Steph. You might not have signed up for that, but here we are. So we're having a little bit of stories. Hopefully that's okay, but you're here. So uh, I look back at a wilderness experience in my life that I wanted to share today, and it was what I would call a relational wilderness experience. Five, six, seven years ago now, uh, some of you weren't in my life then, so you maybe don't know about the story. Maybe you do, but I've processed it quite a bit with my therapist and different people, so I, I know I'm ready to share it with all of you. But this relational wilderness happened before I met my husband, JD. We're about to be married five years, so this was before that. And I was in a long-term relationship with someone, and it was one of those times when you're like, we're serious, we're talking about marriage. You know, there wasn't a ring on the finger, but I had it on the Pinterest board. You know what I'm talking about? And And we're talking about a lot of things, about our life together. But what we hadn't talked about was his closet alcoholism. And when that came to the surface in our relationship, that was a wilderness. And I'll tell you this, it's a long story that I won't get into, but I'll tell you this. If, if that guy who I dated back then was here today, he would tell you this, that the reason that today he is still over eight years sober, he would say, is due in large part to the community at Mill City Church. And he said the reason being is that he had never been around a group of Christians who he thought were such impressive people, yet so willing to be honest about their brokenness. And he said that that experience and some conversations he had with people in this community was what led him to be willing to walk into his first AA meeting. And now, eight years later, he's able to still practice. He's a doctor. He's able to still practice and do what he's doing because he's still sober eight years later. Now, that relationship between us didn't work out. It kind of came to a mutual ending, but it was three years of that wilderness together wrestling through that. And I look back on that time, and I will tell you that that was a serious wilderness in my life. So much uncertainty about arguably one of the biggest questions in your life. Uh, so much suffering that I witnessed in his life and, and, and my own experience coming alongside him and the betrayal from him not telling me. I mean, it just went on and on. But I will say this, it changed me, like fundamentally. When I think about that, I think about how my compassion for people who struggle with addiction, that just, I mean, it grew enormously during that time. I think about how the resolve that I have, I had then and, and has grown significantly for us to, to deal with and confront the brokenness we have as individuals, but also in the church, knowing that Jesus is the only one that can bring healing. I watched that happen in his life, and it changed me. It was such a wilderness, though, and I would say that I just felt like what it did was just catalyze me in certain ways towards this sense of purpose and saying, man, life is, is short, <laughs> and, I, and I recognized what... what is before us when I went through this with him. I, I remember thinking that after that relationship ended, even though that was so difficult, and of course, you know, I, I ended up marrying JD. I was still, this is, I think I'm supposed to still pursue this in my life, and some of you know about the getting back on the horse and all that. Anyway, the point is, is that I was feeling this sense of just such deep wilderness, but I'll tell you that I, until that point, had never had such an intimate experience with Jesus as I had in that season. 
And what I would look back and look on that season, and I would say that as I came out of that wilderness, it was like a personal, like spiritual revival of sorts in my life. It was like a spiritual awakening, or, you know, there's different ways to talk about it. But my life trajectory shifted in ways, and I'm so glad that it did. I really believe that God used that wilderness in ways to change my life. Now, I mean, my vocation didn't change. I was leading Mill City then. I'm, I'm still here. And, you know, that wasn't that, wasn't that kind of change. But, but from the inside out, there were some deep things that happened. And what I want to suggest today is there's an invitation for all of us in the wilderness to be open to how God might want to change us and to change our trajectory. I, that, that's something I want us to, to be at least open to today, that God might use the wilderness, not necessarily cause it, But God might use the wilderness in our life to bring change that God wants to bring to change our trajectory for the sake of his kingdom. And so as we look today at at this passage here in Matthew, if you have a Bible, you can grab it. uh, Turn over to Matthew chapter 4. As we go through today, I just, there's two questions. There's these two fundamental questions. If you've been around Mill City, they won't be new questions to you. But these are fundamental questions that guide us in letting Jesus change our trajectory for the sake of the kingdom of God. And I want to pick up right where Pastor Mike left off last week. If you go to, to verse 17, Matthew 4, 17. Jesus has gone into, uh, he, well, he has come to his baptism. And God's voice, the Father, says, this is my son. I love him. I'm pleased with him. Pleased with him. He had not done any miracles, no healings yet, no walking on water. This is his identity as the loved child of God, Jesus in human form, God in human form on earth. And then he goes into the wilderness He's tested, he's tried, he's the, the enemy tries to come at him, he's fasting, my goodness. And then he comes out of that wilderness experience, and he begins to preach, and this is kind of what I would say is his kind of big idea, his main point in verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And this is where Pastor Mike jumped off last week. This, this, this kind of big sentence that's, that actually represents so much of what Jesus did throughout the rest of his ministry. Um, maybe he was just saying that one sentence and dropping the mic and walking away, but I think what Matthew's trying to say is like this was the, the main point of the preaching that he began to do. Now, I don't know uh, Matthew, you know, we don't know for sure about Matthew's personality. It's fun to see like depictions of, oh, I wonder if Matthew was like this or John was like that, but we don't know for sure. But My assumption about Matthew is this. I think Matthew was one of those kind of like, I'll believe it when I see it kind of guys, all right? Who of you are I'll believe it when I see it people? Be honest. I know some of you are. Yeah, but I see. I'm kind of like that. Like, well, probably, but actually, if we could just see an example of that, right? I saw some of you scientists out there. Like, let's believe it when we see it. I think Matthew's like this, and this is why. You'll see that Matthew, when he says something important in this documenting the story, when he documents something as important as Jesus' main point, um, he then goes to, to show exactly an example of that. And so what we see in the rest of this passage I want to read today in chapter 4 is that this, this main point of Jesus, repent, for the kingdom of God has come near, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Uh, then Matthew says for these next, verse 18 to 22, is an example of repentance. And then verse 23 through 25 shows examples of what happens when the kingdom of God comes near or the reign of God uh, happens around us. And so uh, Matthew's giving kind of a show and tell, and that's what I want us to look at today. So first of all, in this part one, uh, this example of repentance. Now, uh, this concept of repentance, I think is something uh, has, that has kind of suffered from what I would call theological reductionism. This is a term we often use to say 
a theological concept that's so deep and profound, but we want it to just mean something really easy and simple, and so we reduce it. Um, and that's maybe good if you're making like a topping for something, like reducing something and it tastes really good. But when we reduce a deep theological concept, we lose some of its meaning. And so here we see repentance is one of those things. And so last week, Michael talked about some kind of description of what repentance means. So look here on the screen, that, that there's a deep meaning to this concept. It really just kind of means like literally turning towards God, turning your mind and, and turning towards God, admitting regularly where you've gotten off track of that trajectory that God might be leading you towards. Maybe like a restart or a reboot of your faith or like a do-over, do like you want another chance. Uh, it can often mean kind of reprioritization of what it means to follow Jesus. And, and this is just something that's a reality in our lives because our priorities get out of alignment with God's priorities so often, don't they? It's not just about like, hey, you've done something bad, you should feel sorry for it. I think that's maybe a piece of repentance, but repentance is a deep concept that's more than just trying to, to make sure you don't want to feel bad if you did something wrong. Certainly, if you have to turn your mind towards God, it might be away from something that God did not want for you, which might involve forgiveness and might revolve, involve needing to, to have a sense of admitting sin and brokenness in those ways. But oftentimes, it's just we weren't paying attention, and God's like, hello, I want you to pay attention to what's going on here and what I'm doing. There's a deep reality here that we could go on a little bit farther about, but I won't. But the reality is, is we always need to recalibrate and turn back towards Jesus because there is so much that will get us off course in this world. I know that's not a surprise to most of you. And so at Mill City, we often say that repentance starts with this question. What is God saying to me? We say, God, what are, what are you saying? What are you doing? Get, getting my attention. How are you leading me? The, that kind of question. This is one of the two questions I, I said are key questions for us. God, what are you doing? What are you saying in my life? And I think the wilderness is a great place to ask that question. When I was in that relational wilderness, this is the question. God, what are you, what are you saying in the midst of this that led me to that kind of spiritual revival of sorts? So let, let's read Matthew's example of Jesus calling people to turn towards him to repent in this broad definition of what repentance means. So we're uh, picking up where we left off in verse 18. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and they followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and their father Zebedee, and John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called to them, and immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. So this is an interesting way to think about repentance, but these, these guys weren't doing anything wrong. They were doing something important, their job. And, and Jesus is saying, I got to get your attention over here. Come follow me. That's a talk about a trajectory shift, right? And so you've got Peter and Andrew, James and John, these two sets of brothers, and they're called to drop what they were doing. I mean, not just for that moment, though, right? We now know it was drop what they were doing with their livelihood and follow Jesus. Trajectory shifting moment. And it was no small thing that they stopped to follow in this moment. We need to understand in that context, being fishermen, that was not a bad gig. This is like a solid middle-class role. They were doing pretty well. Uh, we, we have no reason to believe that they weren't doing well in this job. I mean, probably pretty successful. Uh, many scholars think that, that uh, James and John and Peter, the, these four men, were all in business together. And uh, they're not considered peasants or, or the poor or something in their community like other people in their community would be. 
And so leaving to follow Jesus would be walking away from how they found a lot of their purpose, you know, in their job, like a lot of us do. And, and that's not necessarily wrong. But Jesus was calling them to turn towards him, right? And, and they were likely, did you notice that? Uh, Jesus is calling to a boat where these brothers are there with their dad. Let's just say that Jesus was probably um, inviting them to step into some family dynamics, when they're leaving the family business as these young men to follow this rabbi. But another thing that would be hard for us to maybe get our heads around because it's not our context, but that in this ancient Jewish culture, there was this tradition of, of young men at the time following a rabbi for a few years to kind of learn about what it meant in that rabbi's eyes to follow Yahweh God. And so it wasn't foreign, this idea of a rabbi uh, being one that you would follow. But you know what was very unusual about this? is that usually the, the would-be disciple comes to the rabbi and kind of says, please consider me as someone that might be worthy of following you. And here, Jesus says, you, I'm choosing you to follow me. That's, that's a flip on that. And it shows this, this authority that Jesus has in a different way than just the rest of these rabbis, first of all. And it also shows how much honor these men might have felt that Jesus, the rabbi, was choosing them and not the other way around. If these young men had begun to work alongside their, their fathers, then the ch chances are they had missed their opportunity as younger men to, to follow along in a rabbi in the way that, that they may have been able to do. So chances are that these men maybe even felt like they weren't worthy of that. This was an honor and shame culture at that time. And so they maybe weren't considered the honorable. They, they had a good job. They are doing well. But they weren't the honored ones that got to follow a rabbi. But here this rabbi, who everyone's been talking about, comes along the sea and calls on them. But make no mistake, it was still a big deal that they chose to let go and to walk away and follow Jesus anyway. So here we go. We see these guys repenting, you know, turning towards what God is doing and choosing to join in. This was a significant trajectory-shifting moment, although they had no idea quite how significant this trajectory shift was going to be in the, in, the, in the world, not just in their life. And so when we ask the question, God, what are you saying to me? What are you doing? How are you leading? You know, I don't think that most of the time that leads to quitting your job. So nobody tomorrow go quit your job and say, look, the sermon was about quitting our job. That's what happened in the Bible. I'm out. That's not what we're saying, okay? Some of you are like, why not? Okay, that's not, that's, that's the vocational wilderness. It's all right. We're here with you. I do actually think that when we ask the question, God, what are you saying? It's not usually a big thing like, quit your job tomorrow. It usually is, hey, what are you holding on to? What are you gripping tightly to that you need to, have you noticed that we just, we just start to grasp onto things in our life and want to just have control? And so often we turn to say, God, what are you doing? And God's like, well, first of all, we're going to need you to let go of some of the things you're holding on to here. They're not even all bad things, but I'm going to need you to have open hands if you want to receive what I have to say. I'm going to let go and turn towards God and say, okay, I'm ready and have this, this posture. Usually it's not quitting your job. Usually it's a shifting your heart towards someone in your life. Usually it's being somebody who has a new posture towards the purpose God might have for your life or how God might be leading you or a new way of being or a new way of engaging with a neighbor or something like that. That's oftentimes what it is. And sometimes it is huge things when we really begin to ask this question regularly, but it's always for the sake of God's kingdom that, that Jesus invites us into these things. So in this story, these four men, they choose to, to repent in this, in this understanding of the word. They turn towards Jesus. They let go of what's in their hands, which in this scenario is fishing nets. No, nothing wrong with that, but God was doing something new, and they had to let go of what was in their hands, and then they had to 
to choose to, to follow, open their hands and follow with their feet. So that brings us to part two of this show and tell that Matthew's doing. So that's the example of repentance just after Jesus' big idea. And now we see this example of the kingdom of God coming near. What does that look like? What happens? And that's in verse 23. When the kingdom, the reign of God, comes near, what does that look like? In the book of Matthew, the deepest theme is the idea that the kingdom of God is inaugurated. It's coming near. It's in our midst. And, and someday the kingdom of God will come fully and all wrong things will be made right. But make no mistake, it's be breaking into our everyday life now. A way to think about the kingdom of God might be to recognize it's not bound by a, a place or a time, but it could be any place or any time that the reign of God breaks into that place. If God is a God of love and mercy, then what does it look like when God's reign comes into a situation? That's the kingdom coming in our midst. Last week, Pastor Mike gave this description. We'll put it up here on the screen. What is it like when the kingdom of God is near? God's presence in Jesus is near. God is not far away. God's healing is near. God's forgiveness is near. God's justice or right-making is near. God's love is near. When we experience that, those are kingdom moments where we experience God breaking into our everyday life. And so at Mill City, we would say seeking the kingdom starts with the question, how can we join into what God is doing? How can we join in this kingdom that's breaking in in our midst? I mean, these aren't easy questions to discern. That's not what I'm saying, but they're very important. God, what are you saying and how can I join in? These are these two core questions. So I want to look at, at this second passage here, uh, 23 to 25. Now, as I read, pay attention to what I just described as the kingdom. How do you see this described in this passage, starting in verse 23? Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and the people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee and Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and the region all across the Jordan followed Jesus, followed him. So, so look at this next slide with some of my emphasis added. I just want to highlight some of these things we just said are true when the kingdom comes near. Well, Jesus' presence is certainly near. He's at this point incarnate, physically present. His healing, now that's easy to see in this passage, Jesus' healing comes near. Uh, and then we see freedom comes near, specifically the examples here of freedom from the demonic. And then there's something really important that Matthew does here. And uh, Dr. Janine Brown, our friend who wrote this commentary about Matthew, she points out something really important here. Matthew is doing something corrective in this description. In that setting at that time, people would sometimes say all illnesses and all pain, suffering, all of that is a result of the demonic and of sin. Somebody did something to deserve that. We sometimes see that kind of, uh, kind of toxic perspective today, don't we? And, and that's Matthew saying, no, no, no. Sometimes there is demonic, sometimes absolutely spiritual warfare, but there's also sometimes physical illnesses. And so he's intentionally separating things like a seizure from somebody who is, is experiencing the demonic. Jesus can bring healing to the spiritual and the physical. Sometimes it's both, sometimes it's either or, but Jesus brings healing. That's an important correction that Matthew's making here to help people understand the, the, the broad reality of what Jesus can do. So one thing that's not easy to see in this passage is that this, there's a significant aspect of justice being brought here. 
It's not maybe something we would recognize in our context, but in this context, if you were sick or injured, it meant you were most likely outcast from society. Because of that toxic understanding that everybody has done something to cause this illness, people had this stigma about folks who were dealing with things. And so they weren't supporting them. And most people who dealt with a physical illness or some sort of ailment, it meant that they were left destitute with no way to get by economically. And so when Jesus healed them, he's not only healing them to set them free from physical suffering or from the demonic, but he's also setting them free from poverty as well. Because they now have an opportunity to choose uh, a way to engage in the community in dignity. These are wrong things being made right by Jesus' action here in this. The justice that comes when the kingdom is near. And so Matthew th- shows throughout this, this, his whole gospel that the, the message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and the actions of the kingdom and the gospel go together. I don't know if you've noticed this, but we sometimes want to separate those things and say, like, the good news about who Jesus is and what he's done and, and the message of that is separate from these realities of what happens when the kingdom comes near and healing and justice and freedom and forgiveness. And we want to almost separate these things out. But throughout the book of Matthew, you see that Matthew's like, these go hand in hand. The gospels both show and tell. And these things are so critical to be seen together, both message and action. And so you see here, did you notice that Jesus is going into these places and he's declaring the good news of the kingdom, the gospel, the good news. He has not yet gone to the cross. He's not yet conquered death and been resurrected. The good news of the kingdom is about the actual actions of what happens, the reaction when the kingdom comes, things are changed. It's, the, it's Jesus' life and then his death and resurrection that conquered death and is the power behind these realities. Jesus, his, his, his forg- the forgiveness, the healing, the freedom, the justice, the access to God is all just kind of empowered by what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And so you see the message, the good news message of Jesus is God loves you. If you trust Jesus, you can be forgiven no matter what. You can embrace a new life of joining in the kingdom of God and someday you'll live eternally with Jesus forever when the kingdom is fully here. The good news in action is healing and freedom and justice and care for the poor and the marginalized and loving your enemies in these actions that Jesus talks about. And they go together. And we got to be careful when we separate those things. And so when Jesus' disciples, when these, first, these men, for instance, these, these first disciples gave their first yes, this was trajectory shifting. It meant radical discipleship. Not any type of discipleship they'd seen in rabbis in the past. This was radical discipleship, and it changed everything, didn't it? To the point that this is part of how we're here today because of the way that those first people said yes and those women later that said yes and followed Jesus. One day they're doing this really good work, and it was good to fish and to support their family. We know they go back to doing some of that. But for this life-changing season, they dropped their nets, they opened their hands, and they followed Jesus. And they saw things that they never would have seen and never had seen in their life. And so Jesus says, repent, turn towards me, see what I'm doing, and then notice that the kingdom of God is near and choose to join in. So I want to just encourage you. What would it look like to ask these two questions every day? All right? Those of you praying about the shower every day, so, you know, I, I, I listen to the news every day, and it shapes how I understand my, my day. What if we were truly to ask these two questions every single day? God, what are you saying, and how can I join in what you're doing in the world around me? If you've been around, you know these are not new questions. These are critical 
And if, I trust me, if you ask these questions every day, you will end up joining in the kingdom in ways that you never imagined. I know that from experience, my own life and watching some of your stories. These are trajectory-shifting questions if you're willing to ask them. But asking those questions, this is, this is going to be significant, and it's significant when you're asking them in a time of wilderness, isn't it? It's difficult because sometimes it takes more effort and we need God's empowerment and the Holy Spirit to help us to ask these questions. But I, I really believe that we will end up joining the kingdom in different ways. So I don't know uh, what, it, what it looks like for you to remember these questions. Maybe you need to put a reminder in your phone for the morning, whatever your routine is. I don't know. Maybe you need to put it on the mirror in the bathroom or, you know, in front of the toilet, where, you know, right there because you spend some time there. I don't know. And maybe you need to put it on the visor in your car. But I'm serious. Like, you got to figure out how these questions can become a part of your everyday routine. Because like we said, like, there's so much pulling at us in every other direction. And so what if these questions really were added to our everyday life? This would be trajectory shifting. It would bring change in our life, whether you're in the wilderness or not. So like I said, this, this current wilderness season that we're experiencing globally, most of us have had compounded wilderness. Is anybody willing to say, I mean, I talked about relational crisis, vocational wilderness, political wilderness, waiting. Would anybody say they've been in compounded wilderness, not just the pandemic? Please tell me I'm not the only person. Okay, I see, I see that. We're, we're here together. And when I look back on this season, I, I'll just share with you what I feel like God is changing in me. When I think about this last couple of years, it feels like eight years ago, seven years ago, when I was in that deep relational wilderness and I came out of that changed, I feel like a, a similar experience is happening to me right now. I feel like the, the experience of the, the pain and the suffering, it's been so hard to go through the things we've gone through. And of course, as a pastor, I have a front row seat to some of the most painful things that have happened in people's lives. But the reality is, is I have also had a front row seat to incredible things that I cannot explain if it wasn't for God. And what I have noticed about myself and so many of us is we have come to the end of ourselves, haven't we? And I have noticed that it's at the end of myself that I can truly find the beginning of the power that comes in the name of Jesus. And I, I have not felt so stripped of all the sense of control that I've had in my life. I, I know, I've known for a long time, like we can't really have certainty, that's not real. But that doesn't stop me, apparently, from striving for certainty. Do you know what that looks like in my life? That looks like plan A, B, C, D, E, F, and G, and worst case scenario planning. <laughs> Look, nothing like March 2020 to tell you like you can't have scenarios for that. And I'm telling you that I, I know this could have gone differently. Not every change of the pandemic has been a positive one for me. But one thing that God has done in my life has just rid me of this need to keep holding on to this false self sense of control. I, I look towards what, what God might be doing and I say, I look and I see that sense of needing to try to grasp and strive for certainty has been replaced with an assurance that I don't know what the future holds, but I know that God holds my future and ours together as a community. And I, I, I know that it wouldn't be this way. I wouldn't be so changed if I hadn't been through what we've just been through. I, I look at all these things that we've experienced, and I know that God has used it in this way. I, I, I also notice, and maybe some of you are with me, that the, the political wilderness that we have been in has just created this experience for me that's made it so obvious that there is no hope other than the leadership found in Jesus. 
That, I mean, just that, that we got to work through what we got here. But at the end of the day, Jesus is our only hope. And that has shifted in me in a deep way. And, and I feel that assurance that comes from knowing that the, the, the human leadership that any of us can provide is nothing compared to Jesus' leadership through the Holy Spirit in our lives. And I feel like the, the best way I can describe it, and this won't be shocking, like if you know me, but I just feel this like, like fire in my bones. Like the church has got to figure out how do we shed these distractions that are not about the kingdom of God and say we are going to have our eyes on Jesus and seek first the kingdom and everything else has to get out of the way. Because we've got to be people who step into the message and the actions of the kingdom of God. Because I just watched life be so fragile and watched how short of a time some of us have. And there's no time to waste to figure out how do we get about the things that Jesus cares about. Not to switch our job, but in the midst of our job. Not to move to another place necessarily, but right in front of us, right where we are. I just feel the sense like the church has to figure out how are we going to be people who join in sharing this, this message and the action of the kingdom of God in this time. Because we can't waste time. I'll have the band come up, but I just want to encourage you. It's not too late. We're still in this wilderness in this way. Come on. But I just want to say it's not too late. For us to say, God, is there some way you want to change my reality and change me in the midst of this? And change my trajectory, maybe not from here to here, but even a little bit so that you're in a different spot. That we're in a different spot. We, we know we serve a God who time and time again has led people into, through, and out of a wilderness. And they've been changed every time. It took, it took like 40 minutes to get out of Egypt, but it took 40 years to get Egypt out of them. And we got to figure out how do we let that stuff be shed and left in the wilderness so that we can step into purpose as we go into what God's calling us into. And so that's my story. That's where I'm at. And I just want to encourage you, if we ask these questions every day, there will be a different reality in your life. It might be subtle at first. It might be significant. I don't know. But what if, what if we were to truly ask these two questions? God, what are you saying? And how can I join in to what you're doing in the world around us? I just encourage you to say, this Jesus who loves you so much will meet you in those questions. So as you go today, reflect on this in our time of worship. What might God be saying and how can we join in 